This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today we're going to do kind of a back-to-school special. We know there's been a lot of anxiety in families, especially with what's happened in Texas. So we want to talk about behavioral health, mental health, stress, and anxiety at the first part of the show. And then we're going to move into talking with a pediatrician about immunization and things to have a healthy start to the new school year. We're delighted that we've got Dr. Lisa Elliott with us today. She's a PhD psychologist at Cook Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much. What would you say are key signs that a child is really feeling anxious or has anxiety about returning to school? interesting. We're already seeing that in our clinical therapy sessions. So it's not uncommon for kids and teens to feel anxiety about returning to school even prior to the pandemic. So it it is a relatively normal developmental, you know, process or experience, but it has definitely become more exacerbated since the pandemic and all the increased safety issues around surrounding schools. That level of anxiety has been far more pronounced. So signs that parents should be watching for is like verbal expression. If their child is expressing fear or if they're expressing worry or feeling anxious, that's definitely a cue. If they see any kind of physical symptoms like stomach aches, headaches, general malaise, um, changes in appetite or even sleeping, maybe even increased nightmares. And you may even see some emotional or behavioral symptoms like increased separation issues or panic-like symptoms. They may even be avoiding you know, previously enjoyed activities, and you may see more withdrawal or social isolation. Another thing you may even see from a behavioral standpoint is increased mood ability, and there may be more anger and irritability, a lower frustration tolerance, even problems concentrating, more tearfulness or sadness, and possibly even like constant seeking, reassurance, checking behaviors, wanting to know where pe- more parents are. You know, you bring up a good point for the adults, too. You know, parents get anxious when their children are going back to school. So if a parent senses these symptoms, how can they support their children with anxiety and depression? Well, the number one thing that we say all the time is absolutely do not minimize or dismiss a child's concerns or feelings. It's really important to make that child feel like that they've been heard. So they've got to listen. You know, we believe in reflective listening too, so that they repeat back what they've heard their child say. So it helps their child feel like they're acknowledged and accepted and their feelings are understood and that they're not going to be criticized. And then equally important is that parents need to be setting a very calm example. Our children are constantly watching us and they're listening to us. And so if we exhibit a lot of anxiety or fear, it's going to only elevate theirs. So if, you know, it's important for them to be monitoring what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's virtually impossible to completely block out all stress from our lives, especially with our news cycles that are going on and 
if they're watching us, how we handle stress. So the more that we keep things calm and peaceful and handle things very calmly and listen, then it's going to be better for our children. Um, I'm a huge fan of limiting screen time exposure, um, all screen times, but also upsetting news. You know, just sticking to routines and structure. Children need, including teenagers, need to know know that there's going to be a, a routine is going to be maintained. And that's like bedtime, meal times, you know, family time. You know, keeping your child healthy and active. So we tell all of our kiddos that there's, in addition to quality food and good sleep time, we know there's three things that we can do, all of us as adults and children, to help manage stress. And that's going to be socializing exercising, and then the other one is doing things for others. We know that philanthropy work, helping others, showing kindness and empathy to others, actually facilitates all those healthy, positive chemicals in our brain, and so and they last the longest. So keeping your child healthy and active, encouraging that socialization, helping them identify feelings, what they're actually experiencing, um, what do they feel in their body, listening to them, and then even sharing coping tools. During the pandemic time, when kids heard their parents experience past episodes of depression or conflict or challenges and then heard their parents how they handled it and they successfully handled it, that is a very positive experience for kids. Also offering comfort distraction, setting limits, not overscheduling your children. And if they feel like it's getting to the point being willing to seek a counselor's help or their pediatrician, all of those are helpful tools. You know, you mentioned in your answer, doing something positive and giving back to others is a great experience for a child. For our listeners, can you give some examples of how you can do that positive influence? Yes. (laughs) This is a huge, if you looked at my office, you would see kindness matters everywhere. And so our children, you know, children are naturally born with a level of empathy. It's just, it's, it's inherent. It's how we're, we're, we're made. And so we need to do things that's going to foster and continue that development. And one of the best ways to do that is for them to see their parents engaging in helping others, whether that is opening doors for others, using kind words, conflict resolution, not getting angry, how they handle conflict and difficult challenges is another one. Scheduling activities to do to help others, whether it's a food kitchen or whether it's helping your neighbors. You know, um, I had some kiddos during the pandemic that actually would make bread for their neighbors because, but they also learned a new skill. Um, They also made jams and jellies. I had another one who learned how to knit. And I had another one, another young man that would actually go and do oil changes for his neighbors and for other people. So volunteer activities like that is a great way to show kindness and empathy. You know, that's great advice. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You know, there's an elephant in the room, and I'm just going to address it head on. We all know about the tragedy in Uvalde. But what about parents and grandparents? I've got three grandkids that are going to be going to elementary school. I'm anxious about that shooting in Uvalde. What should parents and grandparents do? And what do you suggest to help us? Parents must first remember to be the best parent to their child. They have to take care of themselves. And that includes grandparents. It's kind of like that airplane scenario, you know, where you the oxygen mask, they tell the parents to put on the oxygen mask so they can help their child. So 
it's going to be really imperative for parents and grandparents to model self-care and healthy coping, talking about their feelings with other adults, creating or joining parent support groups, you know, again, exercising, eating healthy, getting good sleep, socializing, maintaining structure, all of those things, even using meditation, um, you know, participating in prayer, religious practices, journaling, and practicing gratitude. I also have encouraged parents to speak to their school counselors or their school's administration to learn what they are doing to protect their children and inquiring how they can be effective helpers. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is a lot of schools have made changes as a result of these things. So there are other school districts are learning from these horrific situations, and they're making taking appropriate action to make changes. We're listening to Dr. Lisa Elliott from Cook Children's on the Human Side of Health Care's Back to School special. We're empowering your family to have a great school year this year. Back with more right after this. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to this special human side of healthcare back to school edition. We're spending the first part of our time today talking with Dr. Lisa Elliott from Cook Children's. Obviously, there's been a lot of angst in families across North Texas about this upcoming school year. If you have a child that's truly afraid to return to school, how do we deal with that? Well, the first thing is, again, parents have got to stay calm because kids will definitely read their cues and pick up on their anxiety. It's absolutely critical that we answer their questions honestly, but at what is considered a developmentally appropriate age. And if we don't know the answer, we need to be honest with them and tell them we don't know, but we are going to help find that answer. I, it goes back to this thing where we've got to educate ourselves on what our schools are doing to ensure that safety and then share that again in an age-appropriate way. Um, walking through worst-case scenarios and problem-solving with your children is oftentimes the best ways to help them feel safe, but also what they can do to get themselves to safety. You can even role-play a school safety situation where you encourage them to learn to be observant themselves, that they need to know that it's important for them to report information confidentially that concerns them. So if they see something or hear something, they need to be given that, be empowered to report that. We also need to be really kind to all people because when we're kind to all people, it naturally fosters safety. And um, we teach children that there are things that we, I wish we could have control all the time, but are things that they can control and there's things that they can't control. But one of the things that they can control is how they respond to other children being aggressive, how they respond to bullying and teasing, and um, what they teaching them tools to help them de-escalate situations. Again, that's encouraging our children to learn conflict resolution, teaching them how to do that, how to seek help for adults when they're worried, or if they're even worried about another student who seems to be sad or depressed or angry. And then we also need to know all the ways schools have been safe in the past. The probability is low, but that schools are also learning. And by us sharing with them what the school's doing to help make them safe, for example, my son is going to be having all students bringing clear backpacks. Just anything they can do to help let them know that schools are also doing everything they can to make them feel safe. You know, you mentioned your son having people bring clear backpacks. 
assume he's a school official. Is that correct? Yes, he is a middle school principal in the heart of Dallas. Yes. Do you advise parents to talk to the school officials about what is your plan for safety so they thoroughly understand it and then at home reinforce it with their children? Your thoughts about that? Oh, I'm happy to share those because, yes, I strongly encourage parents to do that. I do know, for example, here in Denton, as well as whenever I talk to my son, what he's going to be doing, they're already having parent meetings and sharing this information with parents in advance. So I have to commend many of our school officials because I think most all schools are doing this, where they're being very proactive and they're trying to share this information to foster a sense of safety and security for both parents and grandparents and kiddos. You know, you mentioned in one of your answers, bullying. You know, I've talked to people who go, I had no idea my child was being bullied. What would you say are some of the real red flags or signs that your child may be bullied at school or even after school? Well, that's a really good question. Bullying is one of my hot topics. It's one of the things I talk about a lot. And it's interesting, a lot of kids feel ashamed that they've been bullied, and so they don't tell people, um, including parents. So some signs and symptoms of that would be if kids no longer want to go to school, they're skipping classes, um, their grades have dropped drastically and suffered. If they stop talking about peers and school activities, particularly peers that they've known for a while, if you even see a change in friends, um, if they've lost interest in previously enjoyed activities because they no longer want to participate, you'll also sometimes see some of the same physical complaints I'd mentioned earlier about anxiety, you know, like sleep issues, nightmares, withdrawing, a lot of somatic complaints, maybe even faking illnesses, um, may show like that victim body language or they keep their head down, hunch shoulders, avoid eye contact. You're going to see emotional manifestations of it, that sadness, angry, irritable, withdrawn, maybe acting timid, timid or overly moody or even aggressive behavior. You're going to see some social and behavioral manifestations where they can withdraw again, as I mentioned, socially, the change in friends. Some kids have even engaged in more self-mutilation where they cut themselves or do other things to themselves to hurt themselves. You may see violence to themselves or others, talking to running away or um, suicide, possibly where they stop using their computer or their technology devices. They may even have injuries that can't be explained. You may find that a lot of their personal property is either destroyed or they've lost it all the time. And you may see huge drops in self-esteem or feelings of hopelessness. Those are all red flags. All of them may not be present, though. You gave some great answers there, and I want to explore those a little bit. If you do have a child that's withdrawn and you see evidence of self-harm, is that something you should immediately seek professional help Because it's hard to get appointments sometimes. If they say, oh, we can see you in three months, that's not something you should put off. Can you elaborate on what I'm driving at here? Yes, um, I'm happy to. And you're right. The, The need for mental quality mental health providers is just exponential. And it's really challenging to be able to find emergent help. So in those situations, I strongly encourage if they cannot get into, if they don't already have an established mental health provider or they can't get into someone right away, 
absolutely make an appointment with their PCP or their, their pediatrician because that can help elevate the urgency with this and help direct those parents in an immediate situation. And you are correct, Steve. It should not be dismissed. You know, going back to bullying, and you mentioned a very good point, technology and online. I'm going to ask you a tough question. We respect people's privacy, but when should parents really know exactly what their children are seeing online and communicating online? Well, (laughs) I don't necessarily believe in respecting (laughs) privacy whenever you have children (laughs) with regard to online activity. Um, And I'm going to give you a perfect example why. I have literally twice now because of information that was shared that parents were not aware of, have been able to call FBI and the hotline for missing exploited children and prevented two potential sex trafficking cases. So it is not just a bullying issue that we should be aware of. It also needs to be for safety issues like this. As I think all computers should be in open access, I think Parents need to have control over their phones, what apps are on those phones, and what they see on those phones. We don't live in a safe world, and we can't guarantee that everybody else is safe. And children's frontal lobes are not fully developed until they're 25. So where they think they're making wise decisions and they think they know someone, they may in fact not. And it is a very dangerous world. So I don't believe in privacy for children with their electronic devices. Now, we're talking about children. Does the same apply to adolescents? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, frontal lobes are not fully developed until 25, and and both of those situations were with adolescents. Thank you. That's great advice. One other follow-up question. Should parents limit the daily time or weekly time a child uses technology? Yes, even the American Pediatric Association clearly reports that you should have no more than two hours of screen time a day. And that screen time is also included as TV time. As a neuropsychologist, we also know, and there's great evidence to show, the damages that too much screen time does to the brain. It it impacts its formation of brain cells and neural pathways. So it's going to impact your skill sets that you you acquire or don't acquire, not to mention it makes a chemical change in the brain. We actually have a diagnosis now um, that we can use for identifying um, addiction to video games. And I know it's limit it says video games, but we are also applying that to social media as well because it's the same reward response system. So they get rewarded for the social contact. They get rewarded for the number of likes. They get rewarded for, you know, the the levels that they get on video games. So, yes, I mean, they absolutely need to do, to regulate and control that time. Not only the time, but what about the content? Some of those video games are quite violent. They are very violent, and there's a lot of research that supports 
that the, the violence in those helps diminish one's understanding of violence and it doesn't apply to, it's, it's back to that empathy factor. We don't understand how that's going to make someone else feel. So yes, violent video games are dangerous as well. This is Dr. Lisa Elliott from Cook Children's in Fort Worth, who, by the way, has a son who is a principal at one of the schools in the Metroplex. There's been a lot of safety planning over the summer to keep our kids safe this school year. And we'll talk more about it with Dr. Elliott next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our Back to School special program and continuing our discussion with Dr. Lisa Elliott. You know, all our hospitals understand your anxiety. And our hospitals have people that are dedicated to helping deal with stress, anxiety, bullying. And we want to do everything we can to help you empower your children to have the best, safest, and most enjoyable school year possible. You know, we've talked a little bit about bullying, in-person bullying, during school, after school, online Talking about it is one thing, but how do you help your child respond to a bully? Well, I'll be happy to to talk, share about that. You know, I'm first of all, a huge believer that parents at a very early age need to be talking openly about bullying. They need to be asking questions. Has it ever happened to you? How did it make you feel? Even role play with others. How did this make your friend feel? That will help I guess, foster and develop more of that empathy and understanding the impact of what that does to somebody. You know, even teaching toddlers how to share, how to take turns, how to use kind words and show kindness. So all of that's important. And of course, back to the whole idea that I've shared earlier, that it's absolutely critical for parents to be modeling kindness and empathy and that conflict resolution. So when you talk about teaching tools to your kid, there is a, ch- a tool that I have and this, I'm hoping this won't be too long of a story, but it actually was generated several years ago as a result of a judge referring six kiddos that were actually in the legal court system because they were perpetual bullies, and it had escalated to that level. And they, I don't know if they even knew any of them, knew each other, so they were all seen individually, but they all shared some really critical information. And that is that bullies enjoy the power that they experience when they see that someone is fearful of them or has hurt another person. And if you just ignore them or don't respond, they continue to believe that you're hurting inside. So as a result of that, I came up with a tool I call the RAT. And that is it's absolutely critical that if they've received bullying, have been a a victim of bullying, they, they need to respond to the bully. But how they respond, both with their word choice and the tone of their voice, is really, really critical. They, the fewer the words they say, the better. So I teach my kids to say words such as, okay, who cares, whatever, big deal, so, so what. The smaller the words, the better. But they, how they deliver those words is just equally as important. It's got to communicate that I've hurt you, but what you have to say does not hurt me. And so then the bullies don't get the reinforcement that they're looking for. They may up their ante and try for a while, a little bit harder and longer, but if the, if the child that's being, being bullied, if they will be 
consistent with it, every story, knock on wood so far that I've heard it, has been successful. So they, if someone is saying something ugly to them, they go need, they need to make sure their voice is kind of elevated where it shows no emotion, like, like in a question format. So, okay, who cares, whatever, big deal, those kind of things. And they can say the same word over and over, but it very much communicates, I've heard you, but what you have to say does not bother me whatsoever. So that's a response tool that I teach kids all the time. Then the other thing that parents need to do is making sure that they constantly kind of check in with their child's self-esteem and confidence. They need to find activities that will help their child feel confident and skilled and that they also gives them opportunity to meet other friends. Parents need to be involved with their child. They need to know their friends and they need to know their friends' parents. Volunteering at school or helping them get involved in philanthropy activities is huge. And if bullying continues, they need to know that they can report that bullying. Um, there's that new David's Law that was passed in, what, September 2017, that schools have been very good, for the most part that I know of, at least my schools around here, that when there's bullying reported, they will take action and help resolve some of that. So that's important to know. We're talking with Dr. Lisa Elliott, a psychologist at Cook Children's, about obviously keeping our kids safe and mentally healthy this upcoming school year. So, Dr. Elliott, we know that serotonin is one of the neurochemicals that helps us balance our emotions. That's been known for years. But what about the kids, especially related to their development? What do, what role does serotonin play for them? Well, and, and you're correct. I think, you know, there's several factors that play into brain chemicals anyway. We know genetics has something to do with it, right? We know that health factors can definitely play into it. Like if someone has a stroke or a heart attack, that can change the chemical um, structure of the brain, you know, for a period of time as well. But we also know that trauma and massive anxiety and stress can as well. It's kind of like if, if, if anyone's ever been in a car accident and you know how your body is flooded with all of these um, chemicals that allow you to escape that situation where you have that fight, flight, or flee response, correct? And so what happens then, you know, your body is flooded with cortisol and with adrenaline. And when that happens, like you're stomach stops functioning, your frontal lobe kind of stops functioning, everything stops just for you to get out of that situation. And what we do know, research has shown this for many, many, many years, that when cortisol levels stay highly elevated for a period longer than two weeks, it kind of begins to impact your own body's production of serotonin. And when that becomes depleted, then you're going to see more anxiety and more depression. So it's really critical to be taught coping tools and things that you can do as well as possibly, if you have to, address it medically. And I think the value in some of the study is for people to finally recognize that, and this is unfortunately the stigma that has negatively been attached to mental health, mental health is actually a physical disease we can't separate out mental health from our bodies and recognizing that when someone says I'm struggling with mental health, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's, it's no different than a heart attack. It's no different than diabetes. It's no different than a seizure disorder. We still need to get treatment for it because it's medical. Exactly. Exactly. And boy, if we could just help people understand that, then we could so reduce that stigma. Yes, that is one of my number one priorities is to reduce the stigma. I've been fighting that for years. And so we've known this information for a long time. I don't know how we get it out more publicly to the community, but they've got to understand this is nothing to be ashamed of. There is no shame attached to this. 
All right. So if you have something in your body, we'll give you a personal example. A few years ago, I got something that my dad had, atrial fibrillation. Sometimes my cardiovascular system doesn't get the oxygen that it needs. I don't go carrying that on my sleeve. It's not a stigma. I don't feel bad about it. It's something I live with, and I actually live with it quite well, so it's fine. So what we're talking about here are neurochemicals. Now, a couple of weeks ago, a study came out that questioned, challenged, I guess is a better word, that depression and serotonin are linked. Can you speak to that? Well, they are, because um, now, you know, everyone is going to be different. So, and we've got multiple chemicals in our brain, right? But we do know there's a direct correlation with serotonin and depression, but also anxiety. And so there are medications. Fortunately, now we have medications that, that help with that significantly. And some people will respond to those differently than others. So I don't want to talk about medications because I'm not a medical physician. Um, but addressing those and adding serotonin into your body and also doing the things that you need to do that will naturally help you keep your cortisol levels down and help you develop serotonin, those will all be effective. I mean, there was, I think there was another study that came out just recently that talked about things you could do to increase dopamine, which is like be creative, listen to music, learn something new. You can also, and that's for pleasure and reward, you can increase endorphins to help with pain and stress and it's exercising, watching comedy, eating dark chocolate. There was another one that talked about oxytocin, which is for love, and that's hugs, socializing, acts of kindness, and then serotonin for good mood, meditating, eating well, and practicing gratitude. And that was just in a simple study just recently about these are things that people can do to help themselves. Well, and to that point, you talked with Steve about parents remaining calm, but I made a note to self. People today are freaking out. There are panic attacks. They are full of fear. There is uncertainty on every corner. How do we keep ourselves together as adults for our kids and grandkids? You're exactly right. I mean, it's almost like we, I told someone the other day, I think we're, we're losing our ever-loving minds. I, you know, it's like I think we polarize too much. I think the polarization that is occurring in our society as well as on the news media all the time is fostering and fueling um, high anxiety, but it's also hatred. And when we have hatred, we are in, unable to see other people with empathy and recognizing they're, they're humans just like us. And I think the other thing that happens too, unfortunately, is, is that we, um, we no longer have the ability to agree to disagree. And that used to be something, I mean, I grew up with that, knowing that, okay, well, I respect your opinion. It's different than my opinion, but oh my gosh, what richness that, that offers. Thank you for sharing that because it helps me see things from a different perspective. We, we don't recognize that that's what makes our world great is having uniquenesses and differences and diversity. You know, it's just, we've, we've just become too polarized and with that polarization has become, has come in hatred and anxiety and fear. And I think that's led to a lot of this. So how do we get this message more instilled into our culture? Now, you're asking me the million-dollar question. If I could come up with the answer to that, when we, we could be famous and multimillionaires, right? Well, we <laughs> could. I don't, I don't, you know, how do we? I, I don't know. I, would, I think what you guys are doing 
is contributing to that. Um, but I think if we would have more people that would step up and say, okay, people, we've got to stop this nonsense. If we would have this drive, like this, this community drive, or we need to have empathy and kindness. We need to have some common decency. We need to have more rational thought. We need to stop the polarization. We hear a lot about the Great Reset. We've heard about it for several years. I think the Great Reset needs to be inside, not outside. Bingo. You are exactly right. Lisa Elliott, psychologist from Cook Children's, thank you so much. Next, health tips for the new school year. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. You know, we're going to continue discussions about back to school and especially vaccinations and some of the requirements to even get registered in school. We're delighted that we've got with us Dr. Alice Phillips, who is a pediatrician at Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. You know, Dr. Phillips, schools in North Texas are reopening. For parents, what vaccines should they be aware of that children need and why? Yes, and, you know, our current vaccine schedule protects our children from a broad range of highly contagious illnesses. And before they enter that classroom where they're going to be in close contact with friends, with classmates, with their teachers, it's critically important that we have them protected against these diseases. And, you know, to name a few, we're protecting them against illnesses like whooping cough. We're protecting them from various forms of bacterial meningitis that could cause serious infection in their brain or cause pneumonia or ear infections. And we're protecting them against diseases that we want to keep out of our schools that we're not seeing there now, illnesses like measles and chickenpox. And these are important to prevent in our healthy children, but also so that as a community, we're protecting the entire classroom of students because we never know when one of our classmates might have a disease that leaves them immunocompromised or a disease process that keeps them from being able to be immunized. And so these vaccines are not only protecting our most precious, our own children, but all of those in our community as well. You know, that's so important. And what you were describing also, and let's let's just pick measles as an example. Can you help our listeners understand the importance of herd immunity? Yeah, and herd immunity is sometimes a really tough uh, concept for the layperson to understand. And what what basically herd immunity is meaning is that we have enough bodies in that classroom to be protected against that illness, that if any small amount of it gets in, we're blocking it. I kind of described it once in an article I wrote for some of my own patients, like playing dodgeball. 
do you want to play on a dodgeball team where everyone is an expert and they catch those balls and they block it and the ball is the illness coming at you? And so you want to catch that ball and block it so that someone standing in the back who might be a little weakened or at risk, they're protected. But if you have less expert members on your dodgeball team, people who can't catch that ball, those balls are going to get through. They're going to hit someone who's at risk. And so it's important that we're all experts at fighting off this disease, that we're all expert dodgeball players. We can block that illness before it gets in. And that's why with an illness like measles, measles is historically the most contagious illness we've ever fought. And for one person that has measles, they can infect up to 18 people. And measles is such a contagious virus that it can hang in the air from someone who's had it for up to an hour so that that person's gone, but you can walk in that room and still breathe that air and get it. It's so highly contagious. And so it's super critical for that illness We maintain our herd immunity as close to 95% or better as we can get it. So that means 95% of every student in that room needs to be vaccinated so that we're all protected. Thanks for that answer. And when a child is born, how soon do they get vaccinations? Yeah, great question. And we start vaccines from day one. And so even in the hospital after our infants are born, we begin vaccinations at that very first moment and we begin the hepatitis B vaccine. And people will often say, why do I need to give that so young? That's protecting the infant from any risk of transmission of hepatitis from the mom to the baby. And we'd all love to imagine a world where 100% of our, our families get excellent prenatal care and we know at delivery if that mom potentially could be infected with hepatitis B, but we're not quite there yet. We're working hard to make that a reality, but there is risk. And so by doing it at birth, we establish lifelong immunity against that illness and we potentially prevent any transmission of that virus from the mother to the infant. From there, we begin our first set of baseline vaccines at two months of age. Two months of age is the youngest that we can even begin to protect them against diphtheria, against whooping cough, against tetanus, against meningitis and polio. And so for that first two months of life, it is one of the times that our infants are most vulnerable to illness. And and that's why, as I said, you know, in a previous response, we are doing this as a community. We're protecting everyone, including those small, vulnerable infants who are not eligible for their vaccines yet. Dr. Phillips, isn't it equally important for the extended family to be immunized for the cocoon effect? Exactly. And, and so that's I love that word cocoon. I explain it to my families as we're wrapping them in a blanket of protection, a similar type of analogy. So everyone that's going to be in contact with that infant, they need to get their vaccines updated. Routinely now, our moms during pregnancy or shortly after delivery, they are given a booster of a vaccine that protects them against tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough. But dads need to go get that checked. Grandparents aunts, uncles, cousins, anyone who could be around that infant should 
protect themselves from any diseases they could pass on. That also includes things like flu. That includes things like COVID. Any illness that we could protect ourselves from and thus pass that protection on by wrapping them in that blanket of protection for the infant. You know, you've done a great job discussing vaccines. And my really final question is, what advice do you have parents other than vaccines on how they can keep their kids healthy throughout the school year? Yeah. And, you know, that gets back to healthy lifestyle choices. And these are the hard things to do. These are not the easy things to do. These are make sure they're eating healthy foods as much as they can. Now, that doesn't mean they can't ever have a chocolate chip cookie or a brownie because we all need those every once in a while. But trying to focus on nice, lean proteins, healthy fruits and vegetables, lots of water. In this heat, water, water, water is so important so that they're staying hydrated, getting good sleep making sure they're going to bed on time and they're getting the necessary amount of sleep. And that varies depending on their age from eight to 10 or 11 hours per night, turning off the electronics, going outside, getting some fresh air, going for a walk, doing a little bit of nature as much as you can. Those daily activities are what are going to reinforce health in their children more than anything. And I get it. They're hard and they're hard to do and they shouldn't beat themselves up if they can't do it every day. But if they can set as a goal to do it as much as they can, then that's going to serve their children well. I also think it's important as much as they can connect with their doctor and get those well visits on a consistent basis. That's also really good for their kiddos' health. You know, checkups and well visits are not just about vaccines. They're about health prevention. They're about monitoring growth. They're about looking for problems that the parents might not know are a problem, but that's my job to be able to recognize them and tell them we need to do something. We need to dig in on this and figure it out. Sometimes, too, it's it's a time for us as, as the doctors to ask the kids, are you doing okay? Um, we've seen some tremendous stress on the kiddos in the pandemic and mental health has become a huge issue. And so just another adult in their, vo- in their life, another voice saying, are you okay? Do you need some help? All of these things together are what help keep our kids happy and healthy and, and make it through this school year um, with as little challenge as possible. We've been listening to Dr. Alice Phillips and appreciate her helpful hints related a healthy start to the school year. And we hope each of your children have a healthy, safe, and meaningful year at school. Please join us next Sunday for the Human Side of Healthcare.